Hi, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to our uh, lecture series event. Uh, first, I would like to say that at the end of the lecture, there will be a Q&A session. And if you want to ask questions, there, there is a mic over there. We'll form a line or something, and we'll see. Uh, my name is Lior Sternfeld. I'm a PhD candidate at the History Department. And I'm honored and delighted to introduce our speaker today, uh, Professor Hamid Abashi. Professor Dabashi is one of the most prolific uh, academics in our field. He has published myriad of books, articles, and chapters. Um, some of uh, the seminal, some of his seminal works are uh, um, "Theology of Discontent" and "Iran: A People Interrupted." He got his PhD from Penn in the early '80s, and he has taught at UT Austin, Harvard, NYU, and Columbia. Professor Dabashi writes a widely read column on aljazeera.com and graciously agreed to come and join us today. I would like to thank the Center for Middle East Studies and Professor Kaman Arai uh, for supporting our series in the past three years. Uh, and I would like to thank our co-sponsors, uh, the History Department and the Institute for Historical Studies. I want to thank Brianna Medaris for helping with all the logistics for this visit. And I want to thank and congratulate my partner in crime in the past three years, Christine Baker, that is moving on to the first uh, assistant professor uh, position. Uh, and now, ah, and I want, I want to welcome aboard my new partner in crime, Mayar Antazari. And now <laughs> uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Dabashi. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you can hear me. It's an absolute pleasure for me to be here with you today. <clears throat> Though I'm very grateful to my colleagues for having facilitated this visit, I'm particularly honored to have been uh, invited by the next generation of scholars in our field, by Lior and his uh, his uh, friends and colleagues in the new generation of, uh, of scholars. Uh, as Lior mentioned, coming to Austin is something of a homecoming for me. Uh, many moons ago, I actually taught at UT Austin. I was just uh, checking with my colleagues, when was this, maybe 84, 85, but I have absolutely blissfully repressed. I, I go around campus today with Lior and I cannot remember anything from anything. So I, I attribute this to this massive oil money that UT Tech Austin has that keeps building this, this beautiful buildings and disorienting uh, thing. Or might be, might be me, because I went to my own alma mater in West Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I couldn't tell what was going on. It looked like an airport. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, many good memories I have here at UT Austin. Uh, I stayed with Mohan Parvar when I w came to uh, UT Austin for the first time. Uh, wonderful memories from uh, Mo and his wife Diane and their lovely children. My uh, dear friend Mike Hillman, uh, whom just scandalized today on my Facebook by uh, reminding everybody how long I have known Mike, and his wife Soraya, and many other late uh, Elizabeth Fernia. Uh, uh, despite the fact that I can't remember the geography of UT uh, Austin, I remember 
wonderful memories of friends and colleagues who uh, hosted me here uh, for a year. Uh, today, I have been asked to talk about uh, the relationship between what is happening in Iran and, uh, and the Arab world. And at, right at the very outset, let me tell you that I'm going to share some very optimistic reading of what is happening uh, in our region. You get up in the morning today and you see there is carnage in Iraq, right? You see uh, hard, continued bloodshed in Syria. Uh, Egypt is still in turmoil. Tunisia is in a better shape, but uh, Libya is nowhere where uh, people hoped it would be. Bahrain's uh, revolutionary uprising has been successfully repressed. The Green Movement in Iran two years ago, uh, initiated two years, uh, uh, actually four years ago, has been successfully curtailed. Uh, so uh, if you look at the horizon of the region from uh, Turkey all the way to Bahrain and from Syria to Yemen, from Morocco to, uh, to Iran, uh, you may think that there is really not much to hope and the Arab Spring has already hit uh, a winter, as it were. Uh, but having uh, just published two books, one on the Green Movement in Iran and soon after that a book on the Arab Spring, uh, I remain absolutely convinced, continue to remain convinced, that we are uh, at the threshold of, uh, of world historic events. Uh, but it all depends what kind of a frame of reference we have. Uh, I was recently in Doha, just two, two weeks ago in Doha. The distinguished Palestinian intellectual, Azmi Bashara, has just established over the last few years a center for uh, research and policy studies in, uh, in Qatar. And he had organized a conference on the 10th anniversary of the US-led invasion of Iraq and had invited, uh, I mean, other than me, they were all Iraqis and some other uh, uh, Arab intellectuals. Uh, the paramount feeling in that, uh, in that conference, uh, just mid-April, uh, particularly by our Iraqi colleagues and scholars, was uh, a sense of perfectly understandable anger, frustration, and so forth, as they are trying to gather data, information, analysis, what has happened to their country over the last uh, decade. Uh, extraordinary research and scholarship that they have done, for example, in terms of uh, 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 the, the destruction of the infrastructure of Iraq, uh, human casualties, they were uh, talking about figures over a million or at least a few hundred thousand. Lancet, Lancet report in 2006 spoke of 650,000 plus. Uh, they were talking about sort of ta uh, tabulating the way the resistance, uh, as they call it, to Iraqi, to a US-led invasion of uh, Iraq had uh, taken place. Uh, but paramount in their, uh, in their uh, sentiment was a sense of frustration and fear that Iraq, as we have known it, is being desedimented, is being fragmented into sectarian violence. The, the Shi'is are going their way, the Sunnis are going their way, the Kurds are going their way. And one of the proudest uh, Arab nation states of the last 100, 150 years, source of extraordinary 
uh, intellectual uh, effervescence is now in fact uh, wondering if there will be an Iraq uh, in future. What was particularly uh, amazing about this meeting, despite the fact that the legitimate anger against the US and, uh, and its European and even regional allies was evident, they were particularly angry with Iran, Islamic Republic, that uh, they believed with some perfectly justifiable uh, evidence that Iran was interfering in their uh, inter-internal affairs. And if you cast a, a look across from uh, Iraq, Iran is very much, uh, the ruling regime in Iran is present in Iraq, is present in Syria, is present in Palestine, is present uh, in Lebanon, and uh, as uh, one of the participants uh, put it, Iran is in fact acting as a, as a mini empire, the, the way put it. And in a way, in fact, Iran is mimicking uh, United States in terms of uh, uh, meddling in internal uh, affairs of these nation states. The alignment that is now quite evident and used to be called the, the line of resistance that extended from Iran to Syria to Hamas, to Hezbollah and Hamas, is now beginning to uh, unravel. First, it was Hamas that decoupled itself soon after the rise of the uh, Syrian revolution from Syria and began to have a rapprochement with Fatah and, uh, and uh, uh, thinking of future of Palestine independent of Syrian-Iranian uh, alliance. Uh, Hassan Nasrallah and, uh, and uh, Hezbollah has not been as quick and they are still very much involved in uh, that uh, fictitious line of resistance with Iran and, and Syria. Syria, as you know, is in deep trouble and continues to be fragmented. And in fact, Syrian revolution is now has, become, has been kidnapped and Syria has become a, a proxy war between uh, Russia, China and uh, Iran on one side and the US and uh, Saudi Arabia and its Persian Gulf uh, allies on the other, and then the rise of these uh, uh, horrid sectarian movements. Now, my uh, uh, position about this 10-year anniversary of Iraq, and thus the suggested, the suggested title of talking about the relation between Iran and the Arab world, is in fact not to follow the imperial calendar oh, 10 years ago, U.S. said that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, later proved to be a, a, a falsehood, uh, and say, okay, now 10 years have passed, what has happened? What has happened, uh, you, you may recall, uh, is very, very clear. Uh, when uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait back in 1990, uh, George Bush the father had the wisdom of sending the U.S. military, uh, led by uh, General Schwarzkopf, to push uh, Saddam Hussein out of uh, uh, Kuwait, but not to uh, uh, overthrow Saddam Hussein. Why? For two very simple reasons. The overthrow of Saddam Hussein would have weakened the central government, strengthened the Shi'is in the south, who have been historically repressed by uh, ruling regime in uh, the Ba'athist regime, and create trouble, uh, create alliances with Iran, and create trouble for Saudi Arabia. And the, uh, in the north would also mean the rise of the Kurds for, and, uh, for their independence, for their well-being, and uh, also potential alliances with the Turkish uh, Kurds, and thus creating uh, trouble for the US NATO ally in, in the north. 
So uh, I still remember vividly an interview that General Schwarzkopf at the time gave was wondering why uh, then President Bush did not allow him to march all the way to Baghdad and finish Saddam Hussein. But at the time, the, 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 the primacy was to uh, stabilize the, uh, the region, but not uh, destabilize it by further uh, dismantling the Iraqi regime. Bush, the son, did not have the wisdom of his father, and he went all the way in, dismantling the central government, thus, uh, a decade after a brutal, even more brutal repression of the Shi'is in the South gave the opportunity for the Shi'is uh, assertion of their identity and uh, political prowess and so forth, and also to the Kurds in the North, and we are in the situation that we are. My proposal there and now here is that instead of uh, thinking about uh, what has happened in Iraq and by extension in the rest of the Arab world, predicated on the imperial calendar, we actually open the frame of reference and begin with a date that is not initiated by any uh, imperial or, or, or military uh, adventure, but actually by events that was initiated in the region, in the region itself. And for that, I propose that the Iranian revolution of 1977-79 is uh, a far more accurate date to start, a far more accurate barometer of what has happened in the region uh, uh, than uh, US-led invasion of Iraq in 2003 or US-led invasion of Afghanistan in 2001 or the events of 9-11 or anything of that. Instead of using this frame of reference and trying to approximate or assimilate backward events of uh, prior decades, my proposal for your consideration is actually to begin with a massive revolution that at the time of its launching in 1977-79 was widely popular, was a multifaceted revolution. Those of us who are students of the Iranian revolution know and have documented in visual, in, uh, in uh, uh, terms in, uh, in, in terms of visual evidence, historical evidence, etc., that it was not an Islamic revolution, but an Islamicized revolution. In other words, you had third world socialist ideologies and sentiments, you had anti-colonial nationalist uh, sentiments, and of course you had militant Islamism in the revolution. Uh, I always say that in order to account for the revolution of 1977-79, you can either start from the coup of 1953, that will give you an anti-colonial nationalist slant towards understanding of the Iranian revolution. You can start from June 1963 uprising led by Khomeini, and that will give you an Islamist uh, slant. And you can uh, start with the famous uh, uprising called Siah Kal in 1971, that will give you a third world socialist uh, angle. So uh, for, the, uh, for the sake of historical accuracy, it would be good to have the three lenses available when you look at the Iranian revolution of 77, 79, and you see uh, uh, forces, ideological forces, political forces, militant forces out in the streets mobilizing and, and so forth that belong to all of these uh, factors. Uh, then what happened after that? Uh, first, let's start externally. Externally, what happens, the revolution, those of you who are around know, and those of you who are not around, just trust your elders, uh, was widely popular, was amazingly popular. A people, without resorting to violence, toppled one of the strongest military uh, powers in the region, 
uh, US ally, European ally, huge oil money, etc. And people just poured into the streets and, and toppled it. So it was widely popular in, uh, in the region. When, uh, let's let, let first start actually internally, then we go externally. Internally, the, the militant Islamists began systematically to eliminate their ideological rivals, beginning with the uh, American hostage crisis of 1979-1980, when the world attention was distracted by 70-odd number of uh, American diplomats held hostage in their own uh, embassy. Under the smoke screen of American hostage crisis, actually something far more pernicious was taking place, namely systematic elimination of all alternative visions of the revolution, particularly the socialist left and also the anti-colonial nationalists uh, uh, among the forces. For 444 days, the world attention was there. It is during these 444 days that uh, the Iranian, the, the constitution of the Islamic Republic is ratified. The, the, the element of Velayat al-Fariq is introduced into the constitution. The first parliamentary election is, uh, is held, uh, etc., etc. And uh, when the hostages had performed their, uh, their utility, their usefulness, of course then they, let, they were let go uh, as soon as uh, President Reagan came to power. And then the, the, uh, the uh, hostage crisis had ended in January 1981, and by September 1980, the Iran-Iraq war had started. So here again, for eight years, you had yet another external factor that cast shadow over the internal uh, developments. The war, of course, uh, our Iraqi colleagues in Doha didn't like what I said, was started by Saddam Hussein. It's a historical fact. But Khomeini prolonged it for his own reasons. What, what were her, his own reasons? Systematic uh, uh, purges at the university, successive cultural revolutions, mass execution of, uh, of the political opposition that cleansed, uh, quote-unquote, the uh, revolution of its non-Islamist uh, uh, elements and turned it into an Islamist and or Islamized uh, revolution uh, in the period. And uh, mean meanwhile, if you now uh, cut back to the external uh, scene, uh, the success and uh, uh, popularity of Iran revolution of 77, 79 uh, created concern for the United States. And here, with its regional allies, US created two bumper zones around Iranian revolution. One was in the form of Saddam Hussein, massively arming him, uh, you may recall the picture of uh, 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 Secretary of Defense, uh, what's his name? I so detest him, I keep forgetting his name. Rumsfeld, shaking hand with uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, and of course, they were also arming Iran uh, through the uh, Iran-Contra affairs, now, now we know, uh, to create a bumper. The bumper was created, of course, and for eight years, the, uh, the Iranian revolution, instead of spreading its wings and becoming more enriched by, uh, by multiple forces joining it, had actually gone internal. But not only that, because of the rhetoric of the war that Saddam Hussein was, uh, was using, Iranian revolution was turned into something Persian, Persianized. Saddam Hussein's rhetoric was the Battle of Qadassiyah. This is the second Battle of Qadassiyah. Egyptian filmmakers were hired to make ghastly propaganda films for Saddam Hussein. So the Iran-Iraq war for eight years 
Persianized and otherwise multifaceted cosmopolitan revolution. Footnote, I just finished a short book on, uh, on a series of revolutionary posters produced in US, in Europe, and in Iran by uh, Iranian students and labor union activists and other revolutionaries. Invariably, these posters show the solidarity of Iranian revolutionaries with every progressive cause around the globe, with civil rights movement in the United States, with anti-war movement in the United States, with liberation movements in Africa, Latin America, Asia, uh, in Ireland, in, uh, with uh, labor uh, movements inside Europe, etc., etc. So it was not in any way so-called Persian revolution, or per it was more Persianized by virtue of suddenly putting a Qadisi, a battle of Qadisi on the other side of it. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Iranian revolution, on uh, Iran, on, uh, on Afghanistan, of course, you had the, uh, the, the two objective of curtailing the Iranian revolution from spreading into Central Asia in conjunction with the, uh, with the uh, will of the Reagan administration to resist the Soviet occupation of, uh, of Afghanistan and thus the creation of uh, the, the Mujahideen that slash uh, Taliban that were created with the help of CIA money from Pakistani intelligence, uh, uh, support money, uh, from uh, uh, Pakistani intelligence and money from Saudi Arabia with the ideology of Wahhabism. Once you create Wahhabism as an ideal, alternative ideology in Afghanistan, suddenly the Iranian revolution becomes Shi'ified. Okay, this becomes a Sunni-Shi'i battle. So from one side, a multifaceted cosmopolitan revolution is, is ethnicized, oh, it's a Persian revolution, and from the other side is sectarianized as to something Shi. Again, this does not mean that Shi uh, uh, ideology or Shi theology did not have a role to play in the formation of Iranian revolution of 77, 79, but it was not the only one, by no stretch of imagination. Particularly now, 33, 4 years after the revolution, Massive scholarship that has been done by multiple scholars shows the diversity of ideological formations uh, at the time. So by the time that Iran-Iraq war ended in 1988, this multifaceted cosmopolitan revolution was ethnicized and, and uh, sectarianized, and it had completely lost its uh, massive regional appeal to a larger constituency that back in 1977-79 could have radically altered uh, uh, the face of uh, uh, the region. Uh, this, again, I emphasize the solidarity that existed among all revolutionary forces in the region, regardless of uh, uh, there being Iranian or Arabs. Among these 146 posters that, that I just mentioned, I have seen posters in which Iranian and Arab students were organizing joint rallies in various parts of the city or in solidarity with the revolutionary uprising with Oman, and they were referring to the Persian Gulf as the Arab Gulf without the slightest hesitation. As you know, there is a, this thing between Arabs and Iranians is that the Persian Gulf or, a, or the Arab Gulf, I call it by its real name, American Gulf. No fish can move in Persian Gulf without control, being controlled from Diego Garcia in, uh, in the Indian Ocean. Uh, this I, I say as an indication of uh, 
with that kind of revolutionary alliances, this kind of petty nonsense of uh, jingoism had, uh, had no place. But uh, the strategy uh, was uh, successful. And of course, the ruling regime in Iran very much welcomed this to be called uh, a Shi'i revolution, uh, predicated on successive purging of the universities and mass executions, etc. And in order to compensate for the allegation that this was a Persian revolution, uh, the ruling regime in Iran soon began to cultivate a relationship with Hamas uh, in the Palestinian National Liberation Movement. And with, after 1982, uh, uh, US, uh, Israeli invasion of, uh, uh, of Lebanon, the formation of uh, Hezbollah. So in Hamas, uh, with Hamas and Hezbollah, the, Iran, uh, the, the Islamized aspect of the Iranian revolution began to spread uh, uh, side uh, wings. Not in the, the way that initially emancipatory possibilities, but in a more sectarian and limited and uh, John Dice way. To make a long story short, the, uh, the Reagan administration's strategy of curtailing the Iranian revolution succeeded by the end of 1980s. But now the two Frankensteins that the Reagan administration had created came back to bite their own creators. The peace treaty between Iran and Iraq had scarce been signed that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait with the same kind of weaponry that U.S. was providing Saddam Hussein. And it is almost at the same time, or a bit later, early 1990s, that for the first time, we in the public hear of this thing called Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and the first attempt against the uh, World Trade Center in New York, and the first targeting of US military and diplomatic interest in uh, Dar es Salaam and uh, other places uh, uh, attributed to, uh, to Al-Qaeda, beginning in the early 1990s, namely the same forces uh, that were enabled by the political machinations among the Saudis, the Pakistanis, and the Americans in the region now turn around against their own uh, creators. Much of the contemporary history that we know about uh, the events of 9-11, I mean, the events of 9-11-2001, uh, uh, is in fact the continuation of this blowback effect, as uh, the late Chalmers Johnson in his magnificent tri uh, 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 blowback trilogy uh, has demonstrated the blowback effect of the policies of the Reagan administration back in the 1990s. Now, this, of course, brings us to the events of 9-11 and uh, the subsequent two US-led invasions, one of uh, uh, Afghanistan in October 2001 and one of Iraq in March 2003. Now, the... Uh, uh, here, of course, the link between Al-Qaeda and uh, Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein has been proven totally to be uh, non-existent. Uh, people differ in, about the rela relationship between the events of 9-11 and uh, at Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda, but even if uh, there is, there is that blowback effect. But what you have, in, if you've opened the frame of reference, the, the, the frame of uh, uh, historical reference, the, event, the, the, the US led invasion of Afghanistan is in fact to dismantle the military 
machinery that it had enabled in order to prevent the spread of Iranian revolution and to kick the, uh, the Soviets out of uh, Afghanistan. And if you look back at the invasion of Iraq, again now, uh, in addition to the fabrication of a link between Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction, which was non-existent, was the dismantling of a military machinery of Saddam Hussein that U.S. had enabled a decade earlier in order to prevent the spread of Iranian revolution of 1979. For this reason, as you see, instead of beginning with this date zero of 9-11, of a terrorist attack against uh, uh, World Trade Center, Pentagon, and the one in Pennsylvania, uh, if you open it up, suddenly you have alternative ways of looking at the U.S.-led invasion of uh, Afghanistan in Iraq. This I offer not by way of any carved on stone kind of an analysis, but simply by suggesting that there is a larger continuity about the short-sightedness of American policies in one episode or another, that then they go back to correct it, and that correcting itself creates another uh, additional uh, uh, issues. Now, this uh, events, of course, bring us back to... Uh, to uh, uh, you know, the, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 2006, that the immediate effect of it, admitted both by Israeli analysts and by others, uh, was a manifest defeat of the Israeli army, uh, and victory for uh, uh, Hezbollah, and victory for uh, Hassan Nasrallah. Uh, in the aftermath of the June 2006 uh, uh, debacle, uh, the popularity of Hassan Nasrallah had skyrocketed in the region. And then, subsequently, in 2008, December 2008, January 2009, uh, operation in, uh, in Gaza, again by, by Israel, just as President Obama was to take uh, office, was yet another indication of a, a, what I call a politics of despair that was operative in the region, and uh, very much a balance of power. Oslo was just non-existent. Uh, continued uh, 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 colonization of Palestinian territories uh, uh, proceeded. The, uh, the idea of a two-state solution that might have been plausible in the immediate aftermath of Oslo became uh, a fiction by virtue of continued colonization, the settlers and, and the uh, use and abuse of uh, the settlers by, uh, by the Likud. So that, as a result, remained the, the, the nodal point of, of the region of which, of course, Islamic Republic was taking full advantage. Now uh, Iraq is in is complete occupation and devastation. Afghanistan is under uh, occupation and devastation. And it is at this point that, of course, uh, we have the rise of the so-called Green Movement in Iran in June 2009. When the Green Movement began in June 2009, my own assessment at the time, I have written this as a record, was that it really made no difference who became the president in the next round of election because the geopolitics of the region was so overwhelmingly powerful that what matters, what was more the uh, jigsaw puzzle and the uh, chess game that you had in the region among various forces, uh, particularly coagulated around the Palestinian uh, issue. But the Green Movement, the post-presidential election in June 2009, proved otherwise. Suddenly, uh, Iran became the epicenter 
of what at the, that very moment, uh, despite the fact that some were calling it, oh, this is a revolution that wants to topple the regime. Others were saying uh, the Iranian regime was calling it fetne or calamity, or this is inspired by US and Israel and, and uh, uh, UK, etc. I called and considered it a civil rights movement. And uh, the movement began, the uprising began by the simple question, where is my vote? And I took that uh, uh, question, rhetorical question, where is my vote, predicated on the assumption that the elections were rigged uh, as an indication that no longer it mattered whether Islamic Republic as a political apparatus, as a regime, stayed in power or did not stay in power. What mattered was people were demanding and were willing to exact, were there to exact their civil liberties, namely trust in their electoral uh, process. Between June 23rd, 2009, and February 14th, uh, 2010, the world was witness to successive, massive demonstrations in the streets of uh, Tehran and other Iranian cities. And uh, the regime, of course, managed successfully to dismantle it, to uh, arrest its leaders, to arrest journalists, arrest filmmakers, uh, etc., and subject them to kangaroo courts and uh, all altogether curtail the, the uprising uh, by the last sort of major attempt for, a, for an event, uh, for a, a public event, a rally, was in February 2010 in solidarity with the Arab Spring. By which time the Arab Spring now was in full bloom. The events in Tunisia and Egypt had already started and spreading into the rest of the Arab world. Uh, soon in March, the people in Syria will be uprising, uh, will lead their uprisings in, in Bahrain. Of course, you, you were witness to successive uh, rallies and, and brutal uh, uh, crackdown. Uh, the king in Morocco began to redraft the constitution. People in Jordan were concerned what, what was going to happen in, in Jordan. I remember in the summer of 2011, as I was writing my book on the Arab Spring, I was teaching a course on Arab Spring. If you don't know the secret, the best way to know something is to teach it. Uh, I had a wager with my student that before the summer ended, Israelis will join this uprising. For which I had a very simple, perhaps naive, but nevertheless plausible argument that in the region we have a block party. Sooner or later, Israeli, uh, young Israelis want to join this block party, which is exactly the argument I use in July 2009, about a month after the Rise of Green movement. I was on an Empire show, Marwan Bishara's in Al Jazeera, July 2009. I said, if I were in a position of authority anywhere from Morocco to Syria, I would watch what is happening in Iran very closely because it is not just Iranian kids or on Facebook and Twitter and uh, what have you. The rest of the Arab world, the, the, the demographic composition is almost identical with the demographic composition in, in Iran, and they will join it. This is about six months before the rise of uh, the, the Arab revolutions. With the same token, I argued that if not politically, if not ideologically, then at least emotively. Millions of Israelis trapped inside this ideology, 
trapped inside these thick apartheid walls that they have constructed around themselves, that they have not run away from a history that extends from, from horrid uh, pogroms to, to the Holocaust to yet again another larger ghetto with a Masada mentality to keep themselves in that condition. They want to come out. Sooner or later, the DNA of this political DNA of Israel needs to be reconceptualized in a manner that weds it to the democratic aspirations of the region and not in a manner that weds it to the uh, uh, dictators like Hosni Mubarak or uh, anybody else, whether in, in, in support of Israeli uh, governments or in opposition, you had a balance of terror, balance of power that kept the condition uh, as it was. My, uh, and before the summer ended, of course, we had the so-called tent uprising in Israel. Now, the tent uprising, of course, had to do with house shortage, had nothing to do with any ideological or anything political. However, if you were to read the columns of uh, people like Gideon Levy and Amira Haas, progressive Israelis who write for Haaretz and other uh, venues, you would realize that uh, there is, in fact, something more than the, uh, the, uh, uh, that, that uprising. So uh, my... Uh, uh, conclusion then, and then as I was writing uh, my book on the Arab Spring, was what I now would like to share as to a number of ideas, uh, uh, very uh, uh, provisional ideas that I put forward for us to think about uh, Iran, the larger Arab world, and the, the larger region. First of all, when we call it Arab Spring, it's important to realize that the word Arab in the spring is, uh, you have to use it under erasure, is both, both insightful but also disrupts insight. Because many of the events that were happening in North Africa from Morocco to uh, Syria were also happening in sub-Sahel Africa, in Djibouti, in uh, Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, for example, people, young people had gathered to watch a video of uh, Tahrir Square and they were har arrested, jailed, harassed, uh, and so forth. So this is also the time that the Eurozone crisis had started, labor unrest in Greece, all the way to the Indignato movement in, uh, in Spain. This is the movement that even in Wisconsin, people began to name uh, things Tahrir Square. And before you know it, you had the, 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 uh, Wallace, the Occupy Wall Street movement. The suggestion is not that, oh, they are all related and we are all uh, on our way to a happy global revolution with hammer and sickle on, uh, on uh, uh, every roof. That is not the idea, but the, the thing is that there is something is happening very akin to the European revolutions of 1848 that, uh, as you know, were also called springs of nations. However, that similarity and that kinds of assimilation backward has certain advantages, but many disadvantages. For this reason, I began to, uh, to think in, in the two books that I mentioned with a number of ideas. One of them was the idea of delayed defiance or deferred defiance. That the whole post-colonial movement of nation-state building, when you look at somebody like Hosni Mubarak or Gaddafi or uh, Bashar al-Assad, that is, the formation of nation-states in the aftermath of European colonialism, they were supposed to deliver independence, democracy, etc., but they had miserably failed. So what we were witnessing happening were, were in fact, a succession of deferred defiance against a promise that was not uh, delivered. 
I also propose the idea of uh, the end of post-colonialism, a provocative uh, idea intentionally that sort of made a number of my colleagues quite dizzy as to what I, what I mean. What I meant by the end of post-colonialism was very simply the exhaustion of the kinds of ideological formations we had had in the, in the course of post-colonial uh, period. Namely, in uh, my kind of tabulation as prototype, formation of uh, third world socialism, anti-colonial nationalism, and militant Islamism as three prototypes of ideology formation ideological uh, knowledge production in the period roughly uh, from middle of the 19th century to uh, early 21st century, those ideologies, those uh, modes of political mobilizations had performed their, their task and had exhausted their possibilities. And no longer as ideologies, they were, they were uh, persuasive. They were uh, e- enabling, that they were uh, 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 relevant that you had the rise of a new generation that no longer was fascinated with charismatic leadership of Gamal Abdul Nasser or Mohammed Mossadegh or Gandhi or Nehru. That this was the rise of a new generation that was more after institutions of democracy. And uh, I remember I had an interview with a Norwegian uh, reporter who said, aren't you concerned that you don't have any charismatic leader? To which I said, we have had it up to here with charismatic leaders. We don't want charismatic leaders. I, uh, we want a situation, we don't know who is our president. We want to know where to go to when there are abuse of uh, rights. So that was another. The other question that I began to uh, develop in conversation with the literature in the field was the idea of open-ended revolution as, total, as opposed to total revolution. In the idea of total revolution, you had a kind of a Leninist takeover of the state apparatus that will begin to re-conceptualize the society at large. Means of production becomes control of the state apparatus, and you have a revolution, everything is hunky-dory. Here, in the aftermath of the collapse of Soviet Union, the crisis of Marxism, uh, rise of Frankfurt School, any number of things that uh, have happened, I argue that, in fact, what we are witnessing, borrowing an idea from, uh, from uh, comparative literature, were Bakhtinian novels as opposed to uh, epics. Novels in the sense that you don't know what is going to happen in the next page. A certain machinery, emotive machinery has been set in motion that nobody is in control, as uh, Bakhtin says, the heteroglossia becomes operative in the unfolding of the revolution. But that there is a direction, but this direction is not teleological. One of the f- worst things that happened in the, when uh, Tunisia and Egypt began to fall is a domino effect. Now, suddenly, all of these states will, will fall. Whereas the fact is that the counter-revolutionary forces, uh, the, the Persian Gulf area, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran, uh, etc., uh, and Syria, they're far more invested in the status quo. Because the status quo provided a, a politics, of, politics of despair in which they could, uh, they could operate. So this idea of open-ended revolution, which I developed in the Arab Spring, provided a narrative theoretical frame of reference as to how to think about these, uh, these uh, revolutions. In, the, in my thinking about the Arab revolutions, I was 
massively under the influence of Hannah Arendt's book on revolution. That you may recall, she compares uh, the French and American revolution and is very critical of the uh, economic or social issue, as she says, economic term that the French Revolution had taken and was fascinated by the American Revolution. In this preference, she made a distinction between liberation and freedom. Liberation is from tyranny and freedom is to participate in democracy. She goes back to the early, to actually late writings of Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Jefferson's fascination with wards, not with mass sort of democratic uh, scales, but with the small scale formations of resistance to the uh, potentialities and proclivities of tyranny in the formation of voluntary associations. Here I began to look, under the influence of Arendt, I began to look at Tahrir Square as the birth place of a new concept of public sphere. But immediately, a kind of a Tocquevillian correction, correcting lens came forward. Instead of a euphoria of Tahrir Square, I began to think about a specific formation of voluntary associations that had to protect the individual against the proclivity of the state towards uh, absolutist power. You have to remember the anxiety of a post-colonial thinker, of suspicion of any state apparatus. I mean, people were surprised when Morsi, for example, reached for grab to grab power and, and uh, dismantled the judiciary, etc. I was not. Because this kind of uh, 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 tendency towards totalitarianism is innate to all states, as we s saw it here during the post-9-11, the uh, Homeland Security Act and the uh, Patriot Act, uh, etc., is not uh, in gene of any people, is in the nature of power. So instead of thinking and theorizing the nature of a state apparatus that was to come after the, this revolution, I began to think about modes of resistance and formation of voluntary associations predicated on the emerging public sphere that will protect the individual against the totalitarian tendencies of the states. Here, based on our historical experiences, I proposed three major voluntary associations as uh, endemic to the future success of this revolution. One was labor unions. Because labor unions, as we saw in the Egyptian revolution, were capable of bringing down the machinery of tyranny because of the, 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 the labor force and the, the, the political might of the labor force. The second was women's rights organizations, because in our society, as many other societies, if you leave men to their own devices, they're constitutionally misogynist and patriarchal. So you need formation of women's rights organization as a form of voluntary association definitive to this mode of resistance to the totalitarian tendencies of, uh, of the state. And third, student assemblies. These three, of course, uh, in every country, if you go from Iran to Egypt or Syria or Jordan or Morocco or Bahrain, they have various degrees of, uh, of relevance. For example, in an oil-based economy uh, like Iran, uh, the labor force is not as powerful as an economy which is not oil-based, uh, say like Egypt. Uh, to give a specific example, the, uh, the, statistically, 
uh, 63% of the university entrants in Iran are women, 63%. But only 12.3% are part of the labor force. That has nothing to do with Khatami or Ahmadinejad or etc. It simply has to do with uh, the fact that 85% of Iranian uh, economy is oil-based, and oil-based economy is not labor-intensive, it's capital-intensive. Which means 50% of university graduates have to go home to their parents, wait to marry, to be able to leave house and form a family. Now, who are they supposed to marry? In, uh, in an economy that has 70, according to the statistics back in, in uh, 2009, uh, 70, 17% uh, unemployment, of which 30% are between the age of 17 and 29, namely the marrying age, right? Now, when the Green Movement, this is another footnote, started, many observers on the left were dismissing it, oh, this is a bourgeois uprising, people in northern Tehran, they think their votes should be counted uh, twice and, and such. Whereas the fact is that in 1997, statistically, three million high school graduates had participated in what is like uh, SAT in the US, the National Entrance Examination. The entire capacity of Iranian public universities then was 240,000, namely less than 10%, meaning more than 90% of high school graduates were pulled into the streets and they were absorbed into three layers of militarized security apparatus, the Pastoran, the Hezbollah, and the, the Basij. These were the kids who were able to have a monthly salary with a motorcycle and a, and a baton to uh, kick uh, demonstrators, but they could also marry and form a family and rent a, a, an apartment and, uh, and, and so forth. So, in other words, the oil money, instead of being spent in, in creating jobs and expanding the, the uh, university apparatus, was actually spent on the security apparatus of the, uh, of the Islamic Republic. Uh, so, these three formations, women's rights movements, labor unions, and uh, uh, student assemblies. Uh, student assemblies particularly because of the continuation with the, with the next generation. I thought were critical moments that the euphoria of the public sphere should be translated into tangible, voluntary, endure, tangible and enduring voluntary associations. The uh, next... Uh, issue that I thought that I was developing in, in these books was the uh, taking, which also has to do with our own disciplines in, in uh, area studies and so forth, looking at the chief slogan of these revolutions in the Arab world, which said, Ashab yurid Nizam, people demand overthrow of the regime. People demand the overthrow of the regime. I began to think about this regime not only as the ruling regime, the military or Hosni Mubarak or etc. I began to think of this regime also of the regime of knowledge with which we understand these developments. Because there was a palpable evidence that we were in fact assimilating the events backward to our disciplinary formations, political science, history, anthropology, area studies, etc., that I thought was not uh, conceptually, categorically, in terms of tropes that we were applying to understand these revolutions, were not, uh, were not applicable. We were not allowing the events themselves to allow the formation of alternative metaphors, concepts, terminologies, and so forth. Here, 
which is uh, more pertinent to the future generation of scholars rather than public at large. My concern was for the systematic transformation of uh, modes of knowledge production from Orientalism to area studies. And then if you look at the period of area studies, areas, this area in the area studies, with areas around Soviet Union that you wanted to produce knowledge about them by way of preventing the spread of uh, communism back in the uh, 50s and 60s. This is how area studies emerged. But with the collapse of Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was no Soviet Union for you to produce knowledge about areas around the Soviet Union. So the next phase of knowledge production was more, uh, in fact, shifted. The site of knowledge production shifted from universities to think tanks who have no sort of obligation, no uh, peer review, no peer promotion, no uh, generation, uh, training of the next generation of scholars. And this was a period that I called production of knowledge under duress. So U.S. wants to invade Afghanistan. You produce, you hire linguists, uh, anthropologists, political scientists, historians to produce knowledge about Afghanistan necessary for the U.S. military. Three years later, U.S. wants to invade Iraq. You you discard disposable knowledge, I call it. You discard with that uh, knowledge. Nobody holds you accountable for anything. There is no epistemic consistency, whereas in Orientalism, there is epistemic consistency. These were capable linguists, they were capable philologists, uh, etc. With all the criticism uh, applicable to them after Edward Said uh, text, the fact is there was an epistemic consistency in what they, they produced. But not in area studies, and certainly not with knowledge under duress and disposable knowledge. When think tanks produce knowledge about Iraq, uh, that, is, that is conducive to this specific military operation. That military operation is over. You dispense with it, and nobody is holding anybody uh, accountable. So given this history, I began to think about this uh, critique of the regime of knowledge production that was necessary for us in order to find out what kind of knowledge do we produce, in what way we are understanding these revolutions, and are the terms and and uh, theories and ideas that we're applying to them compatible with the groundbreaking hist- world historic events that they were, uh, that they were positing for, uh, for our understanding. Here, of course, this period uh, was also, uh, also coincided with the rise of uh, new media and the, with, with all its positive and negative aspects. Uh, I'm not totally gung-ho or new media, or is God's gift to humanity that has all sorts of issues, nor am I antiquarian and and old-fashioned. The fact of the matter is, for my generation, that when the Iranian revolution of 77, 79 happened, and I was a graduate student in Philadelphia, I got in my car and drove from Philly to uh, King of Prussia to find a place, it was a radio shack, to get a shortwave radio from Philadelphia to listen to Radio Tehran to see what was happening as an alternative source of information from New York Times. But by and large, we were at the mercy of New York Times and subsequently CNN, etc. Right now, uh, again, cr- criticizing so-called mainline media doesn't mean that Al Jazeera or uh, anything else is uh, God's gift to humanity. There is something common. All media has an agenda. All medias have uh, editorial uh, process, etc. But nevertheless, there is a multiplicity of media. Uh, 
particularly through the new media and particularly through uh, with all its good and po- positive and negative aspects as you recently saw after the uh, uh, horrid event in, in Boston. I think the, this mode of knowledge production has entered a new phase that uh, is both chaotic and uh, anarchic, but nevertheless enabling uh, in certain other ways. So, to conclude, this ideas of open-ended revolution, the end of post-colonial knowledge production, uh, the necessity of thinking about new regimes of knowledge production, are among the provisional ideas that I have suggested for us to understand the events that unfold the events, and a frame of uh, temporal reference that doesn't concern you if you get up in the morning, you read in the, in the news that, oh, there was a, a women's rights uh, demonstration in Egypt and the women were harassed, uh, so that's the end of the revolution and nothing happens. In other words, you begin to invest and trust in agency that women's rights uh, movements in Arab world or in Iran or in Turkey, they are deep-rooted and there are uh, demographic aspects and there are institutional aspects to these labor, women, and student uh, formations that are not going to disappear uh, over, uh, overnight. And as a result, this kind of thinking will provide us with a frame of reference, with a number of provisional ideas that perhaps we will not be dissuaded immediately in one way or another as to, oh, everything is not hunky-dory on one uh, side, or that, oh, the revolutions are over and the uh, Islamists have uh, taken over. To conclude, I'll simply leave you with this idea, that the active agitation of the public sphere, that we have seen it over the last uh, few years, and that manifests itself in art, in literature, in cinema, in blogs, in, uh, in uh, new media, this is the expansion of the public space from which these revolutions rise, public spheres from which these revolutions rise, and over which no particular ideology, no specific tyranny, and no foreign intervention has a monopoly of control. You look at the scene in Syria, for example, is total carnage. Tens of thousands have been murdered. There are now even indications that the government is using uh, chemical weapons. We're not sure, but there are uh, indications. Massacre after massacre. On the other side, you see that uh, Jabhatul Nas, militant Islamist, sectarian violence is now kind of uh, uh, on the other side. But my argument has always been that when these two warring factions are done with their wars and come down to rule, they say you can conquer a land on horse, but you have to come down to rule it. Syrian people today will not be the same Syrian people that they were under Hafez al-Assad or Bashar al-Assad. Something quintessential, something basic, something irreversible has happened that has been the birth of uh, new citizens. I just, uh, there is a magnificent Italian uh, documentary filmmaker, Mario Rizzo, who just finished uh, a documentary on Camp Zaatari in Jordan uh, that uh, houses uh, tens of thousands of Syrian women and children who have run away from the massacre and live in Camp Zaatari. And as I said in that essay, the Camp Zaatari is the cosmopolis of the birth of the new Arab citizen. 
so I leave you with that uh, long durée but optimistic note, not sort of uh, negligent of the carnage that we are facing, but simply asking you to consider the possibility of a larger historical frame of reference that perhaps is hopefully more optimistic. I thank you for your patience.